Well, it is my delight to be with you again today. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2. We were in Luke chapter 2 last time when we looked at the life of uh, Simeon and how Simeon had a contribution to make to the announcement of the coming of the Lord Jesus. We often give attention to those who have prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus, and it is appropriate that we should do so. Certainly, we can glean a great deal from Isaiah, who gave us a lot of information about the coming of the Lord. And Micah gave us a little information about the location of his birth. But you can even go farther back, right, to Genesis both in the beginning where God had promised that there would be the seed of the woman who would come, and then also toward the end where he predicted that he would come out of the tribe of Judah. And so we have a lot of those who prophesied about the coming of the Lord. But it is interesting also to note that most of the announcements uh, that we read in the New Testament were relative to after he had been born. The, the angels announced that he had been born, so the shepherds ran immediately there. The wise men gained information about the star that he had been born. Simeon gave us an announcement uh, after he had been born, and now we have the look at the life shortly of Anna. You must remember, of course, that the, what we are reading here by Luke was... Uh, a report from what we would today call an investigative report. Luke had been commissioned by a fellow named Theophilus, whether it was a real name or a pseudonym, I don't know. Uh, but the point of the matter was that he did intensive research about this person called Jesus. And in that research, two interesting people called his attention. One was Simeon. It's the only thing we know about Simeon is what's written right in Luke chapter 2. That's it. We don't know anything else about it. Uh, and then we have a short few verses about this woman named Anna. Regardless of our experiences with pain and loss, heartache and tragedy, we trust God. And we continue to live a fruitful, meaningful life an abundant life. Anna was a woman who trusted her God and refused to curl up and die. Anna refused to allow her circumstances to control her attitude and her outlook upon life. Anna refused to become a victim because she believed in a God who sustains. Anna refused to settle or second best. In this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, we read this. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God 
and continue to speak of him, Jesus, to all those who were looking for the redemption of, his, of Jerusalem. Anna was someone who refused to settle for second best. The Lord, her God, sustained her. He was her strength. I cannot tell you how often I've had to encourage people who are going through difficult times. When they seem to be looking for solutions, comfort, sustenance, encouragement in all the wrong sources, in all the wrong places. One of the most vivid of those was a young lady who she and her husband were, you know, if I had planned it, they would never, ever have been married. They came from completely different backgrounds, had completely different aspirations, completely different expectations, and the marriage was a fight from the beginning. And I remember saying to her on one occasion, you need to understand that you must find your happiness in the Lord himself. You must not look to other sources for making you happy. It just doesn't work. Every other source of happiness can be taken away from you. But your relationship with the Lord is a permanent one. And isn't it what Nehemiah said? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so to Anna, Anna, notice about her, first of all, she was single. Single. Now, she had been married for seven years. And if you estimate that maybe she was 17, girls got married fairly early in Israel, and she married 17, she was married seven years, her husband died when she was about 24, we're just guesstimating here. And then she lived a long time after that. The scripture says that she was advanced in years. If she lived another 60 years to the age of 84, she would have been 60 years alone. The life expectancy in Israel at this time was probably about 40 years old, depending upon how you factor in infant mortality. She had lived a lot of years. Now, by the way, it's very interesting, this particular uh, passage where it says uh, she lived as a widow to the age of 84, in more of the translations these days, they wrestle with that a little bit because it's not quite sure that it should be translated that way. In fact, more of the modern translations, like the New International and New English, actually translate this to say she lived 84 years as a widow. In either case, she's either 84 years old or about 105 years old, and in either case, she is advanced in years, especially having lived at least two times the normal life expectancy and maybe three times the normal life expectancy of those who live at this particular time. It begs the question, why did she not remarry? Well, one of the possibilities was that her first marriage was so bad she didn't want to try again. It's always a possibility, you know. Second possibility is that she's uh, still grieving and she's not really willing to live again. But that doesn't match up with the rest of the stuff we read here. The third possibility is that her husband was such a good man, 
she didn't think it would be any use looking again. I have a tendency to lean more toward that one, but I want to suggest that the real, real purpose for her not remarrying was that the Lord was enough for her. The Lord himself was enough for her. It's, it's like the psalmist wrote. It, it, she seems to have embodied the idea of the psalmist David in Psalm 23. And this is my rendering of that passage. My shepherd is Jesus. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down safely in pastures of abundant nourishment. He leads me beside the calm waters of peace and rest. He restores my soul, invigorating the inner man. He leads me and goes before me in paths of righteousness because it matters to him how his child lives. Indeed, though I walk through the valley of the intimidating shadow of death, I will not fear evil because you have overcome the evil one and you are right beside me. Your rod of corrective discipline and your staff of help and encouragement reassure me of your love. You lavishly prepare a table full of bounty as a display of your favor in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with fragrant oil as if I were an honored guest. My cup overflows, most certainly. My life will be filled with goodness and mercy as long as I live, and you will be there to welcome me home to dwell in your house forever. For Anna, the Lord was enough. He was her sustainer. Yes, she was single. She was alone in the world. If she had had children by this time, apparently they're dead. If she had not had children, she was still alone. And yet she chose to have an undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul the Apostle talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, look, I'm not trying to restrict you, but I want you to know that the one who is married cares for the things of the world, how they may please their spouse. But the one who is not married cares about the things of the Lord and can focus upon those things and has an undistracted devotion to the Lord. Anna chose an undistracted devotion to the Lord. And she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. By the way, being alone is a big deal. In verse 36, she is the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, for years I read by that and said, okay, it's fine. She's a tribe of Asher, no big deal. But suddenly, in recent studies, I realized that the tribe of Asher was non-existent at this time. The tribe itself had been one of the ten tribes that were carried away into captivity and never returned. So if, in fact, Anna, the, son, the daughter of Phanuel, was the tribe of Asher, she was one of a very small group who had still claimed and still could generate a, a link to the tribe of Asher. And God used Anna to speak to all of those around who were looking for the redemption of Israel about the coming of Messiah. 
By the way, sometimes I think there are a couple of false extremes when it comes to marriage. One of those false extremes is I'm only complete if I'm married. Well, that would run up against a real tough wall when it comes to the Apostle Paul or Jesus who was not married. Or the other extreme which says marriage will interfere with my fulfillment, which is another false idea. Yes, Genesis 1, God said, it's not good for man to be alone, and it is the general rule. But Jesus himself reminds us that for some people, God has chosen for them to be single. So don't find your fulfillment in other things. Find your fulfillment in the Lord himself. She was alone, but she chose an undistracted devotion to the Lord God, who himself was her sustainer. Secondly, in this passage of scripture, you see that she was serving the Lord. It says in verse 37, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Hers was a power, a prayer empowered service. Hers was similar to the widows of the synagogues. And in the New Testament, the church picked up the responsibility of caring for widows who were in fact really widows. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, honor widows who are widows indeed. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for that is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the feet of the saints, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. The church assumed responsibility to care for them, much like the synagogues in Jerusalem did. She was serving. She was indeed alone. She was steadfast in her hope in God, and she was participating in prayers night and day. Luke uses the term to describe her service simply saying serving. It's the actual term that is used to describe the work of the Levites in the temple. It's also the word that is used in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, <clears throat> and here comes the word, Every translation deals with it a little bit differently. They're trying to capture the meaning. Reasonable service, reasonable worship. And some translations now, reasonable service of worship. Meaning, or your reasonable worshipful service. Because it incorporates both things. It incorporates a worship and a service. 
Years ago, when I served as pastor in the suburbs of Chicago, there was a fellow in our church whose name, we just called him Mickey. And Mickey was, uh, had been a colonel in the, uh, in the Air Force. During World War II, he was responsible for the cartographic group. They did all of the mappings, all the geographical mappings for the pilots in World War II. It was his department. Afterwards, Mickey got to, he got to know the Lord. Became part of our church fellowship, he and his wife. And when we began to rebuild and we wanted to, to modify the front of the building and we were going to close up the old entrance and build a new entrance, but we decided we would reuse as much of the old brick as we could so it would match perfectly. And on one occasion, Mickey, who is now in his 70s, I arrived at the church to find Mickey, a retired Air Force colonel, sitting on a five-gallon bucket out in front of the building with a brick hammer in his hand, chiseling the mortar off the old bricks and stacking them so we could reuse them. Now that may seem to you like some silly little thing, but I want to tell you, when you have a man of his category, and his caliber, his education and training, sitting on a five-gallon bucket with a brick hammer in his hand, chiseling mortar off a brick, it was a worshipful service to the Lord. Mickey did that because he loved the Lord. He did that because he wanted to make a small contribution. Now, I don't know what Mickey could do. I don't know what he could teach. I don't know about all the other things, but I know one he had a heart for Jesus. And that translated into worshipful service. And for Anna, her worshipful service was a service of fastings and prayer. Her ministry, her service was prayer empowered. She prayed. It was a ministry. It is a ministry. <clears throat> Do not ever, ever underestimate the effectiveness of ministry in prayer. I hope you understand that <clears throat> most of the praying that is done in the New Testament <clears throat> is proactive praying. <clears throat> Not reactive. I tell this story on a number of different situations, but years ago we had a study on spiritual warfare. We studied what Chuck Wallace had done and another guy named Franklin. And they put together an outstanding study on what spiritual warfare really is. And in that study of spiritual warfare, we had Chuck Wallace come at the end of it and, and give us a recap. And he talked a lot about the idea of uh, prayer. Thank you. And uh, in talking about prayer, he, he asked the question, how do people get on your prayer list? You think about it in your head. You don't have to answer it, but think about it. How do people get on your prayer list? And of course, we answered the usuals, you know. Somebody has to be sick, somebody has to be in an accident, somebody dies, uh, somebody's having financial trouble, somebody's having, you know, a family discord, uh, there's there maybe a divorce, there's a kid who, you know, needs help, all, the, all of those answers. And his response to us was, 
Why do you allow Satan to determine your prayers? Why do you allow him to dictate what you pray about? And I mean, it hit me like somebody slapped me in the face. Because the point was, if we were as urgent about praying for things before the crisis as we are praying for them after the crisis, maybe there would not be a crisis. If we were more diligent in praying for young couples before they run into the crisis, then maybe there wouldn't be the crisis. If we were more diligent in praying for young adults and young kids and young teenagers before they get into trouble, maybe they wouldn't be getting into trouble and us needing to pray them out of it. And it's true. Think about this. <clears throat> Most praying in the New Testament is proactive praying, not reactive. The Lord's Prayer. Everything in the Lord's Prayer is proactive. Hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Do not lead us, future, into temptation. Deliver us, future, from evil. Forgive us as we forgive. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 was all proactive. Keep them by thy truth. Your word is truth. Keep them from the evil one. Make them one as we are, all proactive. To Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' prayer for Peter was proactive, and God answered his prayer just like Jesus knew he would. In Gethsemane, the prayers of Jesus were proactive in anticipation of what was coming, not in reaction of what had already happened. Anna was a prayer warrior. She took up spiritual warfare in the realm of the spirit in prayer. It was her ministry, it was her service of worship, and we need to value that very, very highly. So Anna was single, Anna was serving, and thirdly, Anna was speaking the Word of God. It is interesting that Luke chose to use the word prophetess of Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Now again, we should remember she's not a priest, nor is she a pastor, she's a prophetess. There were a few prophetesses, prophetesses in the scriptures, right? You've got Miriam, who was a prophetess. You've got Deborah. You've got Huldah. Well, Josiah was king. And you've got, uh, in Acts chapter 21, you've got these uh, daughters of uh, Philip. You had four of them who were prophetesses. 
But they, again, they're not priests, they're not pastors. She spoke for God and interpreted his will in this particular case. Anna was known as someone who knew God intimately, obviously. She spent night and day in fastings and in prayers. She knew the will of God. And she knew the ways of God. And at the moment that Simeon had said, Lord, now you are releasing your servant to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. At that moment, she came up to them and she began to give thanks to God. And then the scripture says she continued to speak about this child, this Jesus, who he was and what he was going to do to all of those who, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The implication here is not that she just said it at this particular location. Not that she just had a one-time confrontation uh, or communication about this Jesus to the people that were there. But she continued in her life to continue to speak to people, all of those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She spoke to them about this child, Jesus. She gave thanks to God. Those who were looking for the Messiah, Jesus. Simeon was looking for that. Joseph of Arimathea was looking for that. Anna was looking for that. And there were a lot of others who were anticipating the coming of Messiah. And he was there. Anna's love for her God drew her close to him and drove her to serve him. Anna found her fulfillment in the Lord God himself. He was her strength and her life. Anna devoted her life to serving him. It was her worshipful service. Anna knew God. He knew his will and his ways. And she had a reputation that she walked with God. Now think about this for just a moment. <clears throat> Anna and Simeon are a couple of those little people. Insignificant. And yet their acts are recorded in the scriptures for us to view and for us to remember that when God gets ready to do something, he prepares the people through whom he's going to do it and gets people ready to announce what he's doing. Simeon had been prepared by God. He was described as one upon whom the Holy Spirit was. Anna spent her worshipful service night and day in the temple in fastings and prayers, preparing her heart as God prepared her, and she was there. Wouldn't it be really, really great if when the moment the Lord comes back for us, we're doing exactly what he asked us to do. That we would be right in the middle of our worshipful service to him, when he walks through the gates of glory to take us home. 
Anna had a prayer-empowered worship and service, and she refused to settle for second best, for the Lord was her fulfillment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for moving upon Luke to do his research so well to find this lady, Anna, who was so alone in the world. Husband's gone, no family. Even her tribe is all but extinct, and she remains a representative. Lord, thank you that she had devoted her life without distraction to you and finds her fulfillment in you. Lord, help us all to be like that. We know that you are enough. Now let us show that by our worship and service. Lord, if there's somebody with us today who has yet to surrender their life to you, who gave your son to die for us, the sinners, I pray that you will help them by your Holy Spirit to believe, to trust, to surrender. Lord, you know that the answer to our fulfillment is not in more money or a better job or different friends or a different wife or a different husband. The answer is you. Lord, help us to be content in you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing, and as we